Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hello City, a lighthearted educational podcast about the built environment. I'm your host, Lisa Dunaway, AICP, Lead AP. And to start off, I want to apologize for the delay in getting this episode out. I had every intention of doing this as a weekly podcast, but I had some bizarre circumstances over the last month between being sick, having bad allergies, then I had some technical problems for like a week. I had a week in there where I actually had to do my real job that pays, and that was a priority. So here we are. This is the fifth time I've tried to record this episode. Yesterday, my cat would not stop meowing in the background, and I had just had it. Um, But today, you're just going to get whatever you get. It's trash day here on my street. Everyone's rolling their toters back up to their houses. The guinea pigs that share my office with me probably will start drinking out of their little water thing. And I'm also doing laundry. So here we go. This week's episode is a comparison of Japanese zoning to zoning in the United States. So getting back into more planner territory than just regular job stuff like the last episode was. And I was very excited to realize that the listeners have a deep interest in this because I do as well. Honestly, I'm obsessed with Japan in general, and I hate the overuse of the word obsessed, but I think I am certifiably obsessed with Japan. I've been three times. I like to eat Japanese-style food constantly. I'm learning Japanese. We've already started planning our next trip to Japan. I could go on, but I know quite a bit about Japanese zoning because I've been there. Also, when I taught at university, one of my GAs did her thesis comparing United States zoning to Japanese zoning. So I learned a lot from her. Her name is Paige Story. She's one of my best friends now. And we talk about Japan quite a bit. Um, I also realized that there had been an article that had went somewhat viral earlier this year and had been picked up by Planetizen and some other planning media outlets and it was called why is japanese zoning more liberal than u.s zoning and it was written in march of 2019 by nolan gray and several people sent it to me as it made the rounds in the internet um, because i just have friends who know of my obsession with japan and it was really well thought out and i think particularly from a physical and social and somewhat economic standpoint, the reasons that the author gave for why Japanese zoning is different from U.S. zoning was very interesting. I have a little bit to add to that, my own theories on why they're so different now when back in the day, our zoning wasn't all that different from Japanese zoning. There was also another article that I'm going to reference by Alex Tabarrok that was published in August of 2016 called The Japanese Zoning System. And it has more of a breakdown of what the different zones, there's only 12, but what are those zones? It's kind of hard to find that information in English otherwise. So I appreciated this article very much. And then finally, I'm going to reference the Wikipedia page for the geography of Japan because I needed a refresher and I also wanted some stats for you. 
So don't worry, I donated my $5 to Wikipedia since I'm using them for this episode and I added in the 35 cents to cover their costs. So I felt like a nice human being (laughs) for donating to them. Make sure you donate to them too. Every little bit helps. But between those four sources and my own knowledge of Japan, we're gonna cover this. I think it's important for you to have an understanding of the geography of Japan because it's so influential on how their zoning hashed out and maybe the biggest reason why theirs is so different from ours. And I'm saying ours throughout because I live in the United States. Also, there are some cultural differences that I'll get into that explain even more why we are different from them in terms of how we not only regulate our zoning, but how we lay those zones out and what we allow and don't allow. So if you look at a map of Japan, you can see it's a long skinny series of islands. There are five main islands and they're sort of a reverse S that's sort of stretched out. And if you sat Japan off the eastern seaboard of the United States, it would go up above Maine, up above even Nova Scotia into Canada, down past the tip of Miami into the Caribbean. So you get a wide variety of climactic zones because it is so long north to south, even though in terms of area. It's only about the size of California. And I guess I say only, even though that's a huge state, but for a country, that seems like an only kind of statement. So they have a very high population and a very small footprint, but that is made even smaller because of the terrain. So the terrain has a very large influence on the climate as well. There's actually very little habitable, flat-ish terrain in Japan. So there are five main islands, and if we go north to south, the northernmost one is Hokkaido. Next is Honshu, and that's the main island where the cities like Tokyo, Osaka, that you've heard of are. Then there's Kyushu, and Shikoku, they're kind of next to each other. And then Okinawa is pretty far to the south. It wasn't even part of Japan for the longest time. But then during the Meiji Restoration, there was interest in it. And then over time, Japan kind of forced their way in. And then the United States came in after World War II and they took it over. And the soldiers were super crappy and The locals decided that they would prefer the Japanese to the shitty Americans. Don't blame them there. There's a fascinating episode. Speaking of my obsession with Japan, my favorite podcast is The History of Japan by Isaac Meyer. Check that out. But he did a really nice, I think it was a two-parter on the American occupation of Okinawa. And I really highly recommend it. He touches on urban planning issues all the time in the podcast series, whether he means to or not. Sometimes he does mean to, obviously, but it's so good. Urban planning has so much influence on history and vice versa. So I recommend that. I will stop fangirling. Let me continue. Um, But then Okinawa wanted to go back with Japan, even though that wasn't great. It was better than being with the U.S. We still have bases there. It's a whole controversy. So there's even different language spoken down there traditionally very interesting, but that's the fifth largest of the islands kind of 
down to the south more. But there are a ton of islands. There's like 7,000 islands total in Japan to the point that there's a ferry that you can take from Tokyo that's a 24-hour ride out into the Pacific Ocean east from Tokyo. And when you get to that set of islands that's way out there, you're still technically in Tokyo, the MSA of Tokyo, which is just fascinating. It's crazy. So going back to the mountainous terrain, if you look at a topographic map of Japan, you'll see that there's just basically a series of mountain peaks all the way down the spine of the country. So it is a series of volcanoes all next to each other. I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that Japan is part of the Pacific Ring of Fire. So Japan is basically just the tops of a bunch of volcanoes that are right next to each other. So you get a lot of mountainous terrain and very little flat-ish area and or plains that are developable. So it's an interesting, somewhat chicken and egg, although it's probably more like 70-30 topography dictated land use because a lot of Japan is not only active volcanoes, even to this day, but it's just very steep. And also, those volcanic peaks are very forested. So I think maybe 30% of it has to do with culture. It could be different. This is just my wild guess. But there is a reverence for the natural environment in Japanese society because of their Shinto. That's been the main religion in Japan for millennia. They don't even really call it, quote, religion. But it is this spiritual tradition in Japan that has a reverence for the natural world because they believe that everything out in nature is inhabited more or less by spirits. It's a word that doesn't translate into English well because we don't have an equivalent. So they say kami and kami is often translated as gods, but they see it somewhere between them being gods and them just sort of being spirits. So not only does a mountain have kami, but the streams on that mountain have kami, the trees on the mountain have kami, etc. So they tend to not just go in and clear cut and strip mine and do all those sorts of highly damaging practices like we might do. So not only is the terrain somewhat prohibitive to development, I think there's a certain degree of them just not wanting to disrupt the natural environment anyway. It is very pervasive throughout their culture, maybe in ways that they themselves are sort of only aware of at a subliminal level because Shinto is so ingrained in their culture. So going back to that notion of developable land, if you, again, look at a topo map of the country, you'll see lots of very high mountainous peaks and steep slopes. And for example, you can farm a little bit on steep slopes, like if you're doing rice paddies, but rice is a tropical wetland plant. So it kind of grows in the southern regions of Japan. A lot of Japan is too cold to grow rice, so they grow wheat instead. But there's not a ton of arable land. Only between 11 and 12% of their land is arable. They have less than 1% in permanent crops, which is kind of interesting. 
They do a lot of seawater sorts of farming endeavors like kelp and fish and stuff, but we're gonna talk only about terrestrial stuff here. It's just sort of a interesting FYI. About 73% of Japan is mountainous, and you've probably heard of the highest point, Mount Fuji or Fujisan, and it's over 12,000 feet tall. The forest cover rate is almost 70% because again, those mountains are very heavily forested and the only other developed nations with such a high forest cover percentage are Finland and Sweden. Less than 5% of their land use is residential, which is very interesting. So you can see that the density that we're all familiar with in Japanese cities starts to make sense because they tend to stack vertically very efficiently and don't spread out like we do because of the topography constraints. There are three major plains in the central island of Honshu. The largest is the Kanto Plain and it is 6,600 square miles. That's where the capital Tokyo is. And you may be familiar with the fact that it is the largest city in the world. The second largest plain is the Nobi Plain and it's only 690 square miles. So it's about a 10th the size of the Kanto Plain. And that's where the third most populous city, Nagoya is. So right away, you start to understand how Tokyo can get so big because it's the largest plain. It was the largest somewhat flattish available space in the entire country. And the third biggest city is in a plain, a tenth of the size. The second biggest city, Osaka, is also in a very small plain, relatively speaking. It's only 620 square miles. Osaka and Nagoya extend inland from the, their respective bays until they reach the mountains. And that's very common. Like if you go to Kyoto, you can see that the city is more or less in a valley and it's surrounded by mountains. It's almost like in a bowl. Because it's a historic town with a lot of historic architecture, it's not quite as dense or as tall as other places like Nagoya or Tokyo. Time and again is the mountainous topography that is the limiting factor on how far things can spread. So it's very obvious that Japanese zoning is gonna be different from the United States if you simply consider topography and available land area. When the Europeans began to settle North America, there was that whole manifest destiny thing and there was this seemingly endless amount of land much of which was very flat once you could get over the appalachian mountains there was so much land until you hit the rockies and so much of it was arable so you can kind of see why sprawl is a thing in the United States, just in terms of topography, but also we're, we're allowing it to happen, right? We, we don't have to allow sprawl to be so rampant. We've chosen to allow that. There's also a cultural difference where, you know, Americans want their own space and we're very individualistic and many people don't want to have neighbors that are near to them and they resent being regulated because they really don't understand what that means and what the benefits of regulation are to them and their property values. The Japanese, conversely, are more collectivist. Although in major cities, people tend to want to live alone. So there's a plethora of individual units 
They still don't mind being in dense places. They don't mind having neighbors. They don't mind living in big apartment buildings. Or if they do have a single family home, those are very densely packed and that is not seen as a bad thing. It doesn't hurt property values. People will have made more of a peace with their neighbors, whereas Americans probably wouldn't in, in large part stand for a lot of that. Now that we have a little bit of background on the geography and the culture, what are the Japanese zones? Japan has 12 basic zones. That's it. And they are set at the national level. So 12 is far fewer than even a typical American city has. The zones are ordered in terms of their potential nuisance to other uses. Instead of zoning for exclusivity, like we do in the US, Japan sets the limit as whatever's the maximum nuisance allowable there. So for example, you couldn't build a factory in a residential neighborhood, but you could put housing in a light industrial zone. The Japanese don't impose one or two exclusive uses for every zone. They just tend to see what's the most nuisance that you could tolerate in a zone. So low nuisance uses are essentially allowed everywhere. That means that mixed use zoning is basically allowed everywhere. And when you're there, it's very obvious that this is the case. So pretty much no matter what city you go into, mixed use zoning is prevalent and stacked quite vertically. Now, certainly you're not going to have hundred some story buildings in mid to small sized cities, but let's just say you go there, probably going to start off in Tokyo. When you walk around Tokyo, it's similar to like let's say a DC or a New York, a Chicago, a Boston, in that you're gonna have retail and restaurants, maybe some offices on the first floor. But as you go up in the United States, it very, become, it very quickly becomes maybe office on the second floor and then residential above, unless you have a building that's owned by a company and they have their offices housed on many floors. And that can happen in Japan too. But the stratification is very different in Japan. So I had to get used to this the first time I went there. I would look at something on Google, want to go eat at a restaurant, say. And then when I would get to the address, I was like, well, this isn't a restaurant. It's a bookstore or whatever. And then I realized I had to look at the sign because they would have a sign that stratified the different businesses in the tower vertically. So come to find out that maybe the restaurant you're looking for is actually on the ninth floor and there's a hotel on floors 30 through 65 or something. So it's a different system of density and vertical stratification that would just not really be allowed anywhere in the United States. And if it is, it's one of those major more Eastern cities and it's limited to, compared to what you would see in Japan. But it makes it very exciting. Japan has a more laissez-faire approach to zoning in general. And I like their lack of specificity on the built forms to a certain degree. So they certainly 
like to control aesthetics a bit because it's inherent in everything in their culture. You can just tell. Like, even packaging at fast food places is beautiful. So they have a cultural interest in aesthetics, but not to the point that they zone out unique and interesting experiences. So you can get not only apartments that are very small, but little businesses that are small, little ramen shops that only seat five or six people. You can have studio apartments that are only accessed by a ladder instead of stairs. You would not see that allowed. Very, very few places would um, code allow that in the United States. So you get these smaller, more intimate experiences like micro spaces that you wouldn't get in the United States that just make things so interesting and surprising and nuanced. And it allows for businesses and people to operate or live more how they want to because if you're a single person in Japan, you probably just want your own little studio apartment. They don't have a culture of getting roommates like we do here. So Americans are very adverse to small spaces generally. So even if you like live in New York City, you're still going to want an apartment of a certain size. And in order to afford that, you're possibly going to have to take on two, three, four roommates. In Japan, apartments are smaller, but they're actually very affordable. And that's just simply what people want. People like to live alone until they get married and have kids. And then even then, they may not have a, a huge living space because they treat the commons more like Europeans do, in that you spend more time outside of the home to do things like eat out, go to the park, go shopping. And I want to dispel the myth that it's expensive to live in places like Tokyo. That's not true. You can get a nice, efficient studio apartment in Tokyo for like 750 bucks a month and it will have its own bathroom. It will probably have its own balcony and have all the things that you need, nothing in excess because if you want other things, you know, you go out and have dinner with your friends instead of just having them come over. No big deal. It's not expensive to eat there. It's not expensive to travel around the country. Hotels are so nice and affordable. Hotels that we would consider to be four stars in the United States will be considered like two stars there and only cost you 60 bucks a night. It's just crazy. So please don't believe the hype that Japan is expensive and especially Tokyo is too expensive because it's not. I found it to be far more affordable to travel in Japan than France, Belgium, Germany, etc. So this demand for different sizes of spaces has led maybe in chicken and egg situation again to developers having much more flexibility and I'll go into that more but developers are definitely allowed more room to interpret the market than they are in the United States. So one clarifier here, just before we move on from the 12 zones, is that in Japan, residential is residential. So if a building is used to provide a place for people to live, it's gonna typically be all residential. It could be rentals, it could be cooperatives, it could be houses, it doesn't matter. Now, that doesn't mean that people can build a 10-story apartment block in the middle of single-family single homes. 
or that's not typical anyway, but there are maximum ratios for building to land area that restricts how high and how dense residential buildings may be. So it's kind of cool for developers because, so let's say in an area they have some land available, but there is a demand for more commercial uses in that area. You wouldn't have, like you would in the United States, need to get a rezoning to build commercial there if there's a bunch of residential around. You can have the flexibility as the developer to respond quickly to the market and just put commercial there because it's allowed by right within that particular zone, let's say. So again, like I said, Japan's zoning is set at the national level and there's only those 12 zones. And culturally, of course, that's not something that would ever fly in the United States. We break things down at the local level to the point that it is super redundant and often contradictory, which is really, really weird because we have so many folks who are anti-regulation and anti-big government, but yet they want things broken down at these very small local levels and they want control over their own destiny so much at the local level that they don't realize how much tax money they're wasting on duplicated resources. But you don't see that mindset in Japan. So zoning is administered at local levels, but the policies are set at the national level. I used the term by right, quote by right before, or as of right, which means that most development in Japan is allowed just by right in a certain zone. Getting permits does not require a lengthy review process, which is great for developers. It saves them some money and quite a bit of time over how permitting works in the United States. But it, there again, it allows them to respond quickly to the market as well. There are a few bulk and density controls in Japanese zoning, limited use segregation, and essentially no regulatory distinction between apartments and single family homes. Again, residential is residential to them. They don't break it down in these arbitrary and finite groups like we do R1, R2, R3. I've seen R4, R5. It's just, it's so silly to me because I'm a fan of the urban environment. So I have a hard time like understanding that whole mindset of exclusivity. But I did grow up out in the boonies. I, I know where they're coming from, I guess, to a certain degree, but I just don't want it for myself. And we'll get into a bit more about how exclusivity influences zoning in the United States. So in the article by Nolan Gray, he posits three theories for why U.S. zoning ended up so much more restrictive than Japanese zoning. And I more or less agree with these, and I've interspersed some of my own thoughts already, but I'll probably have some more to add to it as we go. But I think his first point, he doesn't mention, and I, I assume he's a he, he doesn't mention the physical constraints or the cultural constraints that I do. Doesn't mean he disagrees with that. He just thinks the biggest factor is that U.S. residents value real estate as an investment where the Japanese do not. So that incentivizes us to build exclusivity into our zoning to preserve or even drive up property values into this area that's kind of false value. In America, traditionally, real estate was seen as an investment that would appreciate over time. 
Now, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know that I disagree with that because I lost quite a bit of money on a condo that I bought right before the real estate bubble popped and had to sell my condo after I'd owned it for 16 years for $16,000 less than I'd paid for it. And luckily I didn't owe more than I got for it because that would have really sucked, but I had to hold on to it and rent it out for years waiting for the value of it to recover enough that I could sell it and like pay the realtor fees and all that stuff. So I'm not a fan of the whole American dream of owning property. And I do not believe that it is a safe investment. And at least until we regulate the banks in a way that keeps us more safe. But we also have an affinity for buildings. Other countries don't. So we tend to hold on to buildings, even if they're in terrible condition or built very poorly or are very energy inefficient because they have some sort of character or historical value that we've assigned to them. And that's all fine. I'm like not against historic preservation, but we have a tendency to let our buildings age to the point that they should be condemned or at least significantly retrofitted. And that is not something that they do in Japan. So in Japan, your property is based on the land value, not the value of the home. So it's sort of different. We pay less for our plot and more for our house in the United States. In Japan, they care more about the plot of land and its location. And again, that ability for your property to be bought by a developer and adapted to the market very quickly keeps their property value high, but they don't want to build some sort of extravagant, high quality home because they tend to tear down homes every generation. It's not unusual for homes to be rebuilt every 20 to 30 years. So when you are in a modern Japanese home, you see a lot of modular units like modular kitchens or modular bathrooms that are inserted into a space. They can be removed and recycled very easily because you don't want to put something on your property that could make it difficult to unload at some point if you want to sell. If you're going to leave your plot of land to your children, say nine times out of 10, they're just going to go in there and tear that house down and build something new anyway. Now, I'm not talking about like historic homes that are probably what you're thinking of visually when I'm saying all this. You know, historic homes, especially in mid to small cities, those are more prevalent. Places like Kyoto have quite a bit of historic homes that have that traditional Japanese architecture, and those are highly valued. You can rent those out on Airbnb and stuff right now, which is really cool, but I'm not really talking about those. I'm talking about the vast majority of housing stock. So, as this article by Nolan Gray says, in the US, Americans want stricter zoning laws to build in this exclusivity because that helps maintain or increase their property value because really that's our only meaningful asset. That's our only asset that has some chance of appreciating. Nothing else that we have will do that, you know, outside of our stock investment sorts of things.
We treat housing as a safety net, whether or not it truly is anymore. That's how we treat it. And we have interest deductions, property tax exemptions, subsidized mortgages, all kinds of things that encourage people to treat their home as a savings account. And if you have a home that is high in value in America, you're considered wealthy because that home is worth so much. But the downside of that is homes are not very liquid in the United States. So if you, for some reason, need your money, or let's say you're going to retire and you want to downsize and you want to buy a smaller home with the profits of selling your big old home and then live on the difference for some amount of time, it takes a while to do that. And then for the buyer, depending on whether they're going to change the land use or not, that can be quite cumbersome in the zoning and the variances and the special exceptions and then the permitting on top of that. We make it very hard for people to unload their homes and then for a new owner to do what they want with that property. And again, in Japan, that's just simply not the case. If you live in a city like I do that's sort of plateaued or maybe is even declining, you can have some meager housing appreciation, certainly, but it could be wiped out by maintenance costs and taxes, particularly if your home wasn't super high quality to begin with. You know, trying to put in new insulation or adding solar panels, all these things can very quickly price you out of a neighborhood and or it may not even be worth it because the quality of your house isn't high enough to justify that anyway or you don't intend to live there long enough to justify it anyway. To overcome these issues, municipalities try to restrict the housing that comes in and that creates artificial scarcity which is going to drive up the value of existing homes. So then homes actually cost more than they should. Now part of the argument for why Japanese don't value structures as much as we do is the threat of natural disasters. So the Japanese have a vested interest in keeping land use regulations liberal because they see themselves as a potential future developer if they want to move and sell their property. They don't have any reason to perpetuate housing scarcity like we do. The Japanese do have a very high interest in keeping their structures modern because structural improvements are being made all the time. Certainly earthquake proofing buildings is a very important issue for the Japanese to consider. So I'm not a structural engineer, but you may wonder how all those old buildings like the historic homes and the temples and the shrines, how have those withstood all those earthquakes over the hundreds or thousands of years? Well, it's actually a very simple solution and you can look it up online, but they basically build their structures with posts that sit on a flat stone or concrete pad that if there is an earthquake, those structures just sort of move around on that, that stone or pad. It's a very elegant solution that has been built into traditional Japanese architecture for millennia. Now that doesn't have anything to do with how 
modern buildings are built, but that does explain why they have some historic buildings that are super duper old compared to anything we have in the US. They learned how to work around those earthquakes long ago. But if it's their home and they live in a modern home, there is a definite interest in keeping that housing as safe as possible. And that 20, 30 year turnover allows them to adapt to whatever the latest technology is in terms of earthquake proofing their homes. The second reason why Nolan Gray thinks that Americans support more restrictive zoning than the Japanese is the way we provide public services. So in the US, the quality of your local services is, is determined by your tax base. So if you live in a wealthy area, you have nice things and that draws in more wealthy people and it perpetuates, but the opposite is also true. So we tend to kick areas while they're down. If it's a low income area, people keep leaving because they can't have nice things. And that further degrades the system. It lowers the tax base, things get worse. Whereas in Japan, that is not the case. Tax money comes in and is redistributed at a national level. So it's administered at the local level but collected and distributed at the national level. So when you're there, you don't run into areas of just abject poverty like we do here in the United States. You don't run across large areas of quote slums. Now you may see a neglected house here or there, but it's certainly not anywhere as prevalent as it is here in the States. And they don't do things like punish a school district for being underperforming by taking away their money and making them even lower performing. That whole collectivist mentality allows for everybody to have things that are pretty nice, which I think is lovely. Speaking of public services, that was the trash truck that just went by. <laughs> In America, you only get access to high quality schools and nice parks and great public services if you live in a nice, quote, nice area. Somehow you've been determined to deserve that. And other people who aren't as wealthy as you apparently don't deserve to have nice things, unfortunately. There's an article cited within this article that I'm citing called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, and it apparently explains how this whole land use regulation explains how we have such extreme racial and economic segregation in the U.S. I haven't read it yet. I've been kind of busy with work work, but I'm really interested in reading it at some point. So I will link the articles that I'm referencing to this episode on my website so you can dig in here too if you're interested. But this exclusivity has some very severe economic and racial implications in the United States that just simply does not exist in Japan. It is very nice to travel throughout a country and never run into just horrifically impoverished areas. Again, you see a little bit of blight here and there, especially because the population is aging and they have an abundance of housing in rural areas, but it's just nothing like what you see here in the United States. The UN hasn't investigated Japan because of the rural poverty problem. Now you could make the argument that 
racial inequality isn't going to be as big of a deal in Japan anyway because they're like 98% Japanese and there aren't a ton of foreigners who live there and it's difficult to immigrate into Japan. So that whole issue wouldn't even be a factor anyway. But that would be an argument that demonstrates a clear lack of understanding on all these issues that we've just been discussing. Either subliminally or very deliberately, U.S. planners segregated people into specific areas via land use codes. American planners have done an excellent job of marginalizing people into certain areas historically. Although in most places it's still going on, so it's really up to the younger generations of planners to rewrite the land use codes in order to establish more equitable playing fields for everyone. But this inequity in part is able to happen because we have these smaller municipal government entities. So in the U.S., we have over 89,000 municipal governments and they each are allowed to do whatever type of land use regulation they want. That makes them very highly subject to the interests of local developers and landowners and the wealthy. A lot of special interests have a lot of influence in certain municipalities, and there's little to no oversight from the courts, the state government, or certainly not anything at the federal level. So you can get homeowners in these small, homogenous, middle and upper income suburbs that are very restricted on what is allowed there. And then those ugly elements of racism and classism get mixed into that. So for example, I was in a smaller city recently where they were talking about how when they went to rewrite their zoning ordinance, a local developer got the people involved to wipe seven pages of landscaping standards from their zoning ordinance. And that just blew my mind. First of all, no one should have that much control over what planners know to be right. But of all things to get wiped from your zoning ordinance, landscaping is one of the cheapest things that you can physically do, but has a huge impact on your property value. Like having mature trees on your property can increase your property value by like 20% or more. And I was, I was telling some friends about this the other day who are planners. Because I have also been a landscape architectural designer for so long, I have bought tons of landscaping materials in the past, and most planners have not. Trees and shrubs are not expensive. And if you're talking about doing green infrastructure instead of gray infrastructure, trees, shrubs, and perennials don't cost anything like what gray infrastructure does. Trees don't hold a candle to the expense of pipes and drains and sewers and sanitary systems. So it makes zero sense to me why developers would want to eliminate landscaping standards when that does so much for their resale value when they're trying to unload that thing they've just built. But then also just the money that they're going to have to sink into that property can be vastly reduced because gray infrastructure is super expensive. So that was just horribly short-sighted and I'm sure every planner in that town knows how stupid that was, but they were unable to stand up against the special interests at hand. And that just sucks. I touched on this a little bit earlier, but now to expand on it, the last point that this article by Nolan Gray makes is that this issue of as of right 
system of permitting, quote, as of right, means that you don't have to go through a huge discretionary review process in Japan to get your permits. So it allows you to save a lot of money as a developer. You can keep the costs you're passing on lower. You can adapt to the market quickly, like I've said several times. But it also is great for the planners. They don't have to spend a ton of time doing permitting review. So that's going to save taxpayers money as well. It seems like a win-win-win here, right? There isn't this culture of special exceptions and variances and stuff like that in Japan because so many things are allowed within the zoning. They're written to be general, whereas we like to dissect things down to the nth degree. You basically have to get a variance for everything you want to do in the United States. And it just creates more work than it's often worth. Whereas in Japan, the zoning is written vaguely enough that developers can more or less always put what they want in there as long as the land use is allowed by right. And it is somewhat similar to what we would consider in the states to be form-based zoning. It is a lot like that. That's the closest analogy that I think you could find. Because like I said, the Japanese do care about the aesthetics of the place. And if you're not familiar with form-based zoning, it is a concept where as long as the property looks like its surrounding neighbors, it fits the character of the neighborhood, you can almost do whatever you want in there. Now, just like Japan, the U.S. isn't going to allow a factory to be built in a residential neighborhood just because it looks like a big house. You know, that's not going to work. But... You can have a variety of retail, commercial, residential, all mixed in together as long as the form looks the way you want it to. So it's not a perfect one-to-one comparison, but it is about as close as you can come if you're trying to somehow equate Japanese zoning to something in U.S. zoning. So this has been a somewhat surficial comparison of U.S. and Japanese zoning. If you're interested in a more deep dive, I would recommend you go to the website so you can click on the articles that I've cited and then the articles that they've cited within those. I personally would like to see the United States go in a more laissez-faire way with zoning regulations. By that, I mean moving into zoning regs that allow for more mixed use and are more based on form-based code instead of super restrictive nth degree, breaking things down into tiny arbitrary land uses. And I do think that some of the younger planners entering the workforce and moving up through the ranks of the workforce have this in mind anyway, even though they may not realize it has any relationship to Japanese zoning. It would allow more efficiency in planning offices and saving taxpayer dollars, but it also allows people to adapt their city's physical form to changing times more quickly. And that is a struggle in the United States, particularly if you have dying downtowns and lament the fact that strip malls exist. Well, you've restricted what you allow in your downtown to the point that you've created the need for strip malls. So that's ridiculous. If you want to keep your downtowns from dying or even your residential neighborhoods from dying, it may be that you need to move into a more generous set of land use regulations. I hope you found that informative and interesting. Please feel free to contact me if you have any questions about this or ideas for future episodes. 
The email for the podcast is hellocitypodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hellocitypod and Instagram at hellocitypodcast. I also have a YouTube channel where I put the beeped versions of each episode on YouTube. So if you don't like swearing, you can watch it there. I may also set this episode to pictures that I took while I was in Japan on my three different visits there. So if you're interested in a visual version of this episode in particular, I may put that up in the next week or so. It'll take me a little bit longer than usual. Normally I can get the YouTube episode out the same day as the podcast version, but we'll see. Look for that and it will certainly be on my website, hellocitypodcast.com. We also have a Patreon that you can link to from the website, so please visit that if you're interested. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I think I'll be back next week with a guest. And then I've got several other episodes planned for the end of the year. So keep tuning in and remember, make no small plans. Have a great day. Can you hear my cat? He does this every time I try to record. I thought he was asleep. Oh my gosh. I'm just gonna keep going. (laughs) He just hears me talking and I guess he thinks I'm talking to him. So we're gonna soldier on.